Everybody, what's going on? Welcome to This Week in Mormons, the premier Latter-day Saint podcast focused on news, events, other stuff. I guess that really covers it. I'm Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Jared Gillins. Nice to have you, Jared. Uh, happy uh, Memorial Day, or belated Memorial Day to our uh, United States listeners. We hope it was nice for you. Um, how was your holiday, Jared? Do anything wild? Nothing wild. Um, just... Uh we got our dishwasher repaired. I was really grateful Hello. to the repairman to come out on a holiday, but we'd been waiting three weeks. We moved in. We, we have a. We moved into a, a new house. I mean, a, a new old house. Um, and the dishwasher has. Not, it's brand new and it hasn't worked since we arrived. And so, anyway, that was very exciting to now be able to wash dishes by machine instead of by hand, like the pioneers did in their running water basins. You know. Um, that was tongue in cheek. It's too early for jokes. Sorry, it's a uh, we're, we're recording Tuesday morning because of the did holiday. You not, did you not have a dishwasher in your previous house? We did, we did. Um, that dishwasher, I kind of miss it because it played like the you know how sometimes you have an appliance, and, and I think generally they're like East Asian companies like LG or Samsung. It, Samsung's always played jingles at the end of cycles for almost anything. Yeah, so we have an LG washer and dryer, and those play very short little jingles. Um, we had a, we had a Samsung uh, wa- uh, dishwasher in in our last house, and it played like it seriously played a song that was a minute long, and it had like three mm-hmm. movements to it. Like <laughs> it was the funniest thing, and we kind of liked it because it was cute. It gave the dishwasher a personality, but I also kind of hated it because I never wanted to like start it running right before bedtime because I didn't know if like two and a half hours later we would be woken up by the dishwasher singing. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so no, our dishwasher now it's a it's a whirlpool. And now that it works, it's great. Uh, anyway, so that was what I did yesterday. I waited around for a repairman, and I made some really good mac and cheese to share with Kelsey's family. Um, we went, just had a get-together at Kelsey's sister's house, and my brother-in-law smoked some ribs, which were I did so not delicious. think you were going to say ribs. I didn't know where that was going. Very I don't know. He, so, he used a smoker to heat <laughs> and cook and flavor ribs. For some uh, reason, did. I legit thought you were like my brother-in-law, you know, smokes Smoke marijuana. Some reefer, and yeah. uh, I hope not. He's an employee of the church. Uh-oh. <laughs> Scandal. No, yeah, we had some really great ribs, and I made some, I, I'm not ashamed to brag that I made some really good mac and cheese. Good man. Made, uh, it was a combination of some sh- nice, some Tillamook sharp cheddar and some manchego from. And I've never used manchego in mac and cheese before. I, uh, worth it. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, it took I a little patience um, to get it to melt. It was it it, it took a little longer to, to coax it to melt into the sauce. But once I got that sauce smooth, mm, the texture and the flavor were so good, so lovely. I ate a lot of manchego on the mission, as you might. I'm know. sure. I mean, it's it's like it's like the national cheese of Spain, is it not? Yeah, basically. I mean, there's a lot of good cheeses in Spain, but you get served that. Yeah, pretty frequently you get you know, a cheese and uh, a charcuterie is pretty common presentation before most. For, for our listeners who may not be familiar, Manchego is a sheep's milk cheese. It is most. It is not. It's not a hard cheese. It's a semi-hard cheese. You know, I would say it's a little harder than your your average cheddar, but not as hard as like it's, a it's definitely pecorino or anything. It's slice. It's definitely no. It's not as hard as a pecorino, but it's sliceable. Like it's a yeah. hard cheese like that. But yeah, it's a delicious sheep's milk cheese that has kind of a nice subtle nutty flavor. It's it's mild. But but also still very flavorful and I am of I the opinion it. that in some ways sheep's milk cheeses can in many ways be superior to cow's milk cheese. Oh yeah, I well, mean, I, I mentioned pecorino, pecorino, an actual pecorino, folks. If you're stateside, 
you might go to the store and you're going to see something that will just say Romano and you're going <clears> to <throat> think that means it's Pecorino Romano. <clears throat> if it just says Romano, it's not. It's usually made with cow's milk and right. it tastes like garbage. <laughs> you need to find actual Pecorino made from sheep's milk. And yeah, and I believe Pecorino it, is Italian for sheep's milk cheese, basically. So, yeah. Don't Pecorino is legit if you don't use it. It's delightful. I use it in Yeah, some you can substitute it. Anything that calls for like Parmesan uh, Reggiano or whatever, like which is a cow's milk cheese. And it's also very, very good if you get a good Parmesan. But anything that calls for that, you could substitute in a Pecorino and it's the same idea. But it, I love Pecorino. It's tasty. Oh, oh it's delightful. I want to, I'm trying to make a, what's it called? Cacio e Pepe or something like that. I've never made it before. Yeah, Cacio e Pepe. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I haven't done it yet. Just a, you, you emulsify a bunch of butter with oil and then put a ton of Pecorino and pepper. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's supposed to be um, by the way, Trader Joe's has a like, you know, it's yes. like a, a pirate's booty type snack, yes. but it's pecorino. It's, it's cacio e pepe flavored of, I can't remember what they call it, but you know, anyway, it's, it's, like it's amazing. It, it tastes like you're eating like pop, the popcorn version. Pirate's Things booty version I learned of. this weekend as well. The Hershey yeah. company owns pirate's booty. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, but they, they have their fingers. This, this came from, we were looking at Hershey park. And then in my kit, and then so in Hershey Park to do the height requirements, they mm-hmm. the levels they don't just say you know one two three whatever. They name them after various Hershey like candy products. So there's like Jolly Rancher level of like height requirements. So my son was like cracking up because he thought this was a funny way to do it. So he asked like, well, what else does Hershey make? And then we found out they own all kinds of random things, like That's most true. companies do. But I my, didn't even realize that they own Jolly Rancher. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is legit, man. This is a, this is a beautiful digression. This is yeah. Great. Well, I, don't, I was going to say after the first part of it, we should change the show to this week in cheeses, and I would listen to that. Twick <laughs> or and Twitch. Twitch. That's right, Twitch. Easy. Um, no one's, no one's also, that, that would resolve any issues anybody has with the name of this show if we changed it to Cheeses. Yeah, I mean, if literally if we made this show into a different program altogether, <laughs> it, we, we would lose it. so much of our we do of that. the uh, the. the the griping that people you mean, make about yeah, anything. Yeah, so now we we've already we've already lost two thirds of our audience from our extremely bougie talk about cheese and cacio e pepe. It's, we don't care. We don't apologize for who we no, are. I, I do not apologize for loving just like cheese. the church leadership. We do not apologize for anything. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Wow. That's how we're doing. And people. then you we'll just go. alienated the, the the last third of the. the, the good. So it's fun. So good. I'm glad you had a good. Uh, Memorial Day. I decided to wear out my kids. We went on like a three mile hike and oh, nice. then uh, took them to lunch and got ice cream. And you ever been to Clifton? Did you guys ever go out to Clifton when you lived here? Clifton, no. Clifton's a little village in Fairfax County. It's like in this valley with nothing. And it's like, it looks like it, it's a postcard from the mid 19th century. Hmm. Randomly there. Yeah. It's, it's funny that it's just kind of isolated. So we love little that. towns like that. That's yeah, one thing cool. we miss about the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, what's all this? Okay. Well, I just wore out the kids. They were so tired. It's delightful when your children are just completely. And then we took them swimming afterwards too. So they were just. They, had nothing, <laughs> they didn't they had just sink to the bottom. Pretty much. It was great. Um, interesting new, bit of news this week. I don't even know where to start. I'm just going to go in one of the orders where I have it written right here. Because I love temple news, as you know. So um, the temple in Guam uh, was dedicated last week, I believe, by Elder uh, David A. Bednar. It's the second smallest temple in the church. It's only 6,800 square feet. There's going to be a few of these other ones that are similar to uh, Yigo that will also be close to that small. But this is a very small temple. Guam has one stake. So that's fine. It works for its size. 
And that, now there's nothing wrong with the temple being tiny. And um, this article by Tad Walsh kind of cracks me up because it's just like, basically they just say it might be this small, but that's not a limitation. Well, I've never the, felt it. Well, sorry, go ahead. I, I've never like, I wasn't reading this thing. A temple with small square footage of being like, this just temple is limited in what it can accomplish. I've never felt like that's a thing, right. but okay. Thanks for calling it out. It's like the Bishop who asked me, who asked you far too probing questions about certain things that you didn't know existed before. Now, <laughs> now all I'm thinking about are small temples are, are weak. Tad Walsh. No, um, well, there's the quote. There was a quote from Elder Bednar in the article. And he says, we do not have small temples. In oh, the that's church. the other one. Yes. And I remember reading that and being like, well, technically we do. But I, I get his point. His point is like, there's no difference in what a, a temple can like provide, you know, or offer a member of yeah. the church as, as far as being a sanctuary, as far as being a dedicated house of the Lord, as far as being a place where you can be endowed with power. Like it doesn't matter the size of the temple. But but be like, I guess sometimes I read Elder Bednar very literally because he comes across that way. He like likes to project himself as like a here is an authoritative statement. And so when I read there are no small temples of church, I'm like, well, there are, <laughs> it's just that it doesn't matter that they're small. I, I don't know. No, I'm actually, thank you for bringing that part up. Cause I, I thought the exact same thing uh, when I read it. And it, it also kind of echoed his statements when he said like, there are no LGBTQ members of the church. Remember all that? And he was trying to make yeah, the point home to like, we're all yeah, just he was trying to like shed labels no and labels. just be like, we're all children of God. We're all covenant members of the church. And it's just like, but there are LGBTQ members who are covenant members of the church. Anyway, and the size and the architecture of the temple are interesting, but the building is not the focus. What occurs in the temple as we worldly receive covenants and ordinances is what the temple is about. hundred percent true. Absolutely agree. That makes perfect sense. But I do, I think even more so with the temple, I'm like, I think it's okay to say a temple's big or small. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially considering <clears throat> you've got an apostle saying this, but then in the same, the, the same church-owned publications will have no problem mentioning how large and impressive the Washington, D.C. temple is during its Right, opening. or the Salt Lake or the Mexico City or whatever. The, they often note, this is the third it's, largest temple that the church yeah, has built. They always mention the Washington, D.C. temple is the tallest temple in the church which it is like there's superlatives to go around. And I, so it's just kind of funny to like, don't, don't ding the little ones. Like who cares? I don't care that it's small. It serves a purpose. It's fine. It's doing its thing. It serves the needs of the members. All right. And I'm glad we're having this conversation, but we're kind of burying the lead about the most interesting thing. I was about to get, I was about to get. So other than us being upset about the size (laughs) questions, um, what is interesting about this temple is they only, uh, they only release this information, like with the dedication Uh, it's designed to be, not modular. Not it wasn't built modularly in that sense. Mo- but modular, kind of in the sense that you can convert different rooms. So the temple was clearly built with. Um, it's built to I- either have, from what I can tell, you can have two ordinance room. You can have an ordinance room and a ceiling room, or you can have two and two. Basically, you can flip the rooms around where where it can be either an ordinance room, or based on the needs of those present, that ordinance room can be swapped out and become a ceiling room. And Isn't likewise, there's ceilings ordinances. I know, but they call it an ordinance room. I don't, well, I'm what's interesting about this article is that they 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 start out calling it an instruction room, and I noticed that that's when I did terminology, the, actually, yeah, yeah. When I did the walkthrough at the New Pocatello Temple, I kept on like seeing signs, and it says, you know, because they labeled each room with these big, you know, standy type signs. I, I was going to ask you real quick when you did Pocatello, uh-huh. did they do what they did in DC now, where they just had signs up and you just walk through, and there's no longer organized like groups, guides, like yeah, Philly was? Yeah, just kind of okay. followed a line through the temple and there wasn't any kind of individual there were people stationed throughout the temple and you could ask some questions but it was basically like you mostly just kept the line moving it was just yeah. a steady okay. stream uh, walk through 
I was curious because a couple of weeks ago, um, Corey was on and we were talking about the DC Temple did that, but I wasn't sure based on some of our other experiences whether they were doing that approach for rededicated temples. But mm. since Pocatello is new, that gives us some more insight there. So. Yeah. Well, I Sorry. was just going to say what I, what I found interesting was like, I, it took me a few, seeing a few of these rooms to realize what they were, but I kept on seeing rooms and it said instruction room. And I was like, is this like a new room that we're putting in temples? Like, like we have our endowment room and our ceiling room and here's an instruction room. And I'm like, what's the instruction room for? And it, like I said, after like the third one, I was like, oh, the instruction room is an endowment room. We're just using some altered uh, terminology, I guess. Yeah. And so I don't know, I, I, maybe that's something we're pushing for. Maybe endowment, we don't want to overuse it because, I mean, it is kind of a sacred term, right? It's a scriptural term that you will be endowed with power from on high kind of a thing. And so maybe to avoid overusing a term like that, we say, well, this is where we're instructed. And then also as part of that instruction, we receive an endowment of power. Anyway, so I don't know. That's neither here nor there. But I thought it was interesting that it was about halfway through the article where it said an instruction room, also known as an endowment room. And I was like, yeah, yeah, interesting. It's, this is a new trend, I guess. Yeah, something like that. But I so, think that's really cool to be able to convert and say, oh, today we have these endowments and we need this to be an endowment room. Oh, but today we have more ceilings than we normally have. So let's we can convert this endowment room to be a ceiling room because that's the need. And that's, yeah, I think that's really cool. It is cool. And they say it's the first temple um, to do that, which that was a big question we had. I was like, I mean, St. George, like back in the day, you know, they mm-hmm. just had, they had curtains, partitions set up and they could change it around, but that was kind of a different situation. This temple serves, uh, there's one stake in Guam proper. Uh, and then there's one stake in two districts in Micronesia, but that's the entire temple's district. It's about 9,600 saints. And so it's very awesome. They can uh, they can flip that around as needed. Well, I think it's great too. I mean, we we've been talking about the coolness of the temple. <laughs> we talked about the the size and whether that is like relevant or not. And the the, the like you said, not, not not quite modularity, but the convertibility of the rooms, which is also very cool. But also just really cool is the fact that they've created a temple to serve such a small population. Uh, my aunt and uncle, like. Uh, and their family lived in Guam in like the mid to late eighties. My uncle was in the Navy, got oh, stationed right, yeah. there. So I, I, I've had passing familiarity, but I had to look it up um, to see exactly where it is. And and like many of these Pacific nations, it's just, it's in the middle of the Pacific, just looked nothing around it. So I zoomed out the map. And I think at the time when my uh, aunt's family lived there, they, their closest temple was Hong Kong and which is not close and looking at the map, I, I, their t- closest temple for these members is probably one of the ones in the Philippines, I'm guessing. Yeah, and the, and the Philippines, the temple in Manila would predate the one in Hong Kong. Oh, really? Well, I know my they used to go to Hong Kong for <clears> things, and so I don't know if that if that was if there was more if it was more convenient. Perhaps maybe there were more direct flights, or that maybe the navy helps them in some way. I don't know, but maybe you're right. Maybe the Manila temple is older, but Hong Kong was. I know it was the temple was there when they were there. I want to say. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, my point uh, by is... By the way, um, before we get off of this, Hong Kong Temple has been closed for many years for a, a kind of a reconception, uh, redoing the whole thing, especially because it was a multi-purpose building, but they've, right. moved, they've moved out a bunch of the mission offices and other things to a building across the street and expanding the temple itself. In the process, they've stripped it of its spire, gotten rid of Moroni, changed some of the exterior fascia and reliefs and things like that. Um, it quietly had an open house they didn't tell anybody about that already concluded. I mean, they've got very strict COVID protocols in Hong Kong. 
but also probably not, trying not to rile the Chinese government, which is probably also very important after the whole Shanghai Temple debacle. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not yet ready to call it a debacle, but I'm with. But I, I <laughs> is there a softer it. term for debacle? Uh, um, the Shanghai Temple question mark? Um, the question mark. I don't know. But yeah, it's uh, fine. So they had they had kerfuffle. a very they had a week long open house in May. Three thousand people toured the interior, and that was it. But they, there was no fanfare about this. I think it's yeah. Like I agree with everything you said. I'm just fascinated by the yeah. fact that they. Uh... Anyway, the, I, just the point I was trying to make was just like how great for the the members of Guam to not have to travel to Hong Kong or Manila or yeah, you know, which is relatively close when you see how close they are to anything else in the Pacific, but very far. You know, it was quite a it was, it was quite a journey to have to, to to go if they wanted to go to the temple, and now they've got one that's really close because guam is a tiny island like it's not far you know anything on the island is not far from where anybody lives so that's you know i love that the church makes an effort to provide resources like this to people and that's you know back when president hinckley announced the first small you know small temple yes other bednar there's no small temples but um you know that was part of the point he's like we can make temples much more accessible if we build on a smaller scale we can provide them to a whole lot more people. And I love that that that's been uh, a continued focus of the church to provide remote access to remote members and they can still have the blessings of the temple. An ongoing trend too, an, an, an emerging trend and one that we're going to see a lot more of as so, more templates or book. That being said, maybe this is a good segue into another story that uh, we wanted to cover this week. There was a um, article from a blog called Church Growth. Oh, LDS come on. You, Church you know LDS Church Growth, don't you? I, I don't. I, this is the first time I've oh, seen Matt, it. Matt Martinick. This guy's a legend. It's amazing that he's run this for years. He's never updated it to be anything more than a blogger page. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's classic blogger layout. Yeah, yeah. Matt Martinick is a pretty noted demographer. He is. He's a... Uh, He's pretty hardcore. This may, so worthwhile blog if you're interested in all sorts of things involving stats and whatever else uh, about the church, especially globally, where he he has got contacts around the globe giving him information on things. I was using his website recently, for example, to uh, look up. I was trying to look at more detail on the church's meteoric rise and collapse in Armenia, which is hmm. a subject for another time, but a very interesting one because the church organized a stake and then with three years disorganized the stake and about two thirds of the members quit. So wow. yeah, weird stuff going on in Armenia. That's a subject for another time. No. Hmm. Interesting. Great blog. Everyone should check it out. He's, he's always got good stuff there. Yeah. Well, this article that you uh, posted for this, this week, the, the title of the post is the patience and faith of the lost saints of Malemba Nukulu. And Malemba Nukulu is a very remote area in the democratic Republic of the Congo. And it's really interesting because the article the the post whatever you call it on blogger um you know points out that the growth of the church in the DRC has been like really big um that you know they've got just tons of growth they've they've uh i think they've announced they've got one temple and they announced a second one recently right in DRC they've got two more going up in DRC two more. So there's one in Lubumbashi and one in um and one in um, Kananga Kananga Okay. Yeah. So like, you know, the church is like, obviously has a very strong presence and has, uh, you know, for several years now in the DRC and it's just got meteoric growth. Um, but there's this one little really super remote area where there are people who 
have received word of the gospel and you know and you get these stories if you remember like the church did one several years ago it was great about i can't remember the name of the guy but the the man Vicenzo. Who, Vicenzo. Yeah, no it was the it was the african vicenzo uh, of you know a man who received a copy of the book of mormon and started preaching from it and this was back in the 70s before uh the priest and temple ban had been lifted um, and he, but he basically converted a ton of people. And so that when the church started reaching out more actively into Africa after the 1978 revelation, um, like there were just tons of people who were ready to go. And so a similar thing is happening in this little lost area of DRC, where there's a ton of people who are like basically more or less converted to uh, the restored gospel of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the church has no official presence there. And so you have this interesting situation where there are people who are learning doctrine and being converted uh, spiritually and like ready to receive. But then also, since there's no official presence, you're getting some weird practices like polygamy and things like that here and there. Uh, and they keep reaching out. And the church has kind of basically said, you know, stay faithful, keep doing what you're doing. We're not ready to go there yet. And so the question, I guess, and, and there's a video that he uh, linked to or embedded along with his little article. And I, I, I didn't get a chance to see it. I don't think you did either, Jeff. I haven't watched it all yet, no. Yeah. So, but I mean, so it might explain a little bit more, but I think basically the issue is just like, it's so remote that even the church is having trouble, like figuring out how it's going to get out there and establish lines of contact to, to maintain an official presence of the church there. So it's it's a weird and interesting problem, and and so it, it's kind of an interesting contrast to what we just talked about. How the church is like, hey, Guam is like the tiniest little you know, U.S. territory there is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with nothing around it, but there's a stake there, and we want the members there to have a temple, and we you know we serve these remote areas as well as we can. And on the other side, there's this area where you could have probably more members uh, ready to go uh, than currently live on all of Guam. Uh, but the church is like, we don't have the resources to reach out to this area at this point. So I don't, I, I, I wish we knew a little bit more about why, why the church isn't able um, to establish a presence there. But it was an interesting little article. Do you have any more insight or thought on that? Just a couple, and it's, and it, it really drives the point home how important infrastructure is and and developed areas. Guam's not very big. Guam's been controlled by the United States since the Spanish-American War. It's got a right. huge military presence. It's a developed area. It's not hard to like put in a temple there in that sense uh, and support the members therein. Um, Malemba Nakulu is not an area I know or anybody any means. It's kind of south, like a lot of the DRC, southeast DRC. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is a very, very large country geographically, both north, north to south and east to west. But it's still... And if you looked at a map, you would see it's not like far off of some of the main highways that go through the country. But I imagine some of those highways, like in this case, the N33 that cuts right past it, you know, they're not in the best shape. We're not talking, you're not driving on European grade, you know. Right, like single lane dirt road type yeah. stuff that, that uh, maybe often washes out in the rain or something like that. And so the nearest member, the nearest church unit is in Camina. But by car, even on this kind of main road, it's 281 kilometers, and that's over four hours of drive time to get there. So yeah, that makes them more remote. Even if you look at a map, and it seems like there's a lot of 
civilization, so to speak, larger metro areas clustered, not crazy far away. It matters in this part of the world. I mean, obviously there could be saints who could be far more isolated if you were up in like Northern DRC, for example, like Kisangani or somewhere up there. Yeah. Like there's nothing out there, Mm -hmm. but, um, they are comparatively isolated, even though they're sort of on that main Southern swing of where the greater population centers are. And so it's, you know, the church can in some ways only do so much. I don't know what the reasons are why they don't invest in one area, but it might be, it's tough. It makes me wish that the church had the resources to just go into Africa and be like, let us build you roads and infrastructure instead of China, right? <laughs> and then, right. Because you've got, this goes more into geopolitics, but um, China is heavily involved in sub-Saharan Africa in hmm. building all kinds of roads and ports and all sorts of things. Hoping, I didn't know that. Look up the Belt and Road Initiative. It is a fun little project for China. China does a lot in Africa with the hope that African nations will have its back when all is said and done. And we could go on, I could go on and on about how the U.S. is like asleep at the wheel when it comes to investing in Africa, but that's another thing. Um, that's been the story for decades. <laughs> yeah, so. it kind of is. It's a little disappointing yeah. because these are, these are rising economies, rising people, uh, you know, an increasingly educated populace. What a wonderful, what wonderful individual so government about. isn't just looking to establish trade relations, but also potentially political allies. Well, there, of course, of course, it's what everyone's yeah. doing. You know, it's the great yeah. game. That's what we're doing. So if you had the church doing this instead, it would take out the politics of it. It would just be like, hey, nice church. Thanks for building, helping us build roads. I mean, obviously our hope would be now we're all going to wear our, our Latter-day Saint helping hands vests while we do this so that you understand the good work we are doing. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I know the church has invested a lot in a lot of African infrastructure, but we do a lot what, of projects. What I've sure. seen, yeah. it's been more like digging wells and in, in the, and it's more about sanitation and health type initiatives, like with water, et cetera. So does the church also do road building? I haven't seen that kind of infrastructure. I doubt it. Well, I mean, and I, I'm being tongue in cheek because the absolute reason why is because building roads is very expensive. Not that building oh, wells sure. and things is not, but that can be a whole... It's a different animal, right? Much more different animal. I mean, you can be talking... A road alone in like a rural area could cost two, three million dollars per mile easily. Right. So. So you're throwing that into a hundred odd miles if you're talking the number of kilometers here. And yeah, is the church going to just come out and drop $500 million to build a nice road between Kamina and Malemba Nakulu? I don't know if it's going to do that. Yes. Um, I don't know. Yes, was that I don't know. Was like, no, That was a rhetorical question, Jared. I don't know. Dang it, I don't know. Dang it. So it, 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 but it does highlight an interesting problem. And uh, I'm sure it's things that the church leadership's conscious of. Like, I'm sure they're aware of these saints and these, these opportunities there, but sure. they just don't feel like maybe it would be a bad faith move to send in the the resources and organize them with the the concern that they can't formally support them once they are uh, made more official in that sense. And that makes it even more complicated, but I don't know. Well, also, I mean, and it's one thing to say like, okay, here's the place that obviously, you know, these people have been walking dozens of miles back and forth each state to get water and, you know, let's sink a well here. And like, that's one thing. But then when you start building roads, then you might, it might become more of a thing where then like these saints in like remote area of Brazil are like, wait a minute, why are you building them a road when we could use a road? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You open a new floodgate of like, what is the church's role and what are they willing to do as far, you know, along these lines? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to some of that, uh, some demographic things in a few. Let's move now though to Salt Lake City, everyone. 
Land of Enchantment, as they call it. That's what it says on the license plates, right? Utah, Land of Enchantment. Yes. I think that's New Mexico. Yeah. No, no, I'm pretty sure it's Utah. Uh, um, so um, Utah says the powder is great. Well, yeah. Well, the, the license plates classically say greatest snow on earth. But now, so I, I, I make the, Ute, the Idaho-Utah drive a lot these days. Um, and the big sign that they have as you cross over from Idaho into Utah, it life says elevated. life elevated. I, and I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good state slogan as far as state slogans go. Not bad. Oh, did they ever follow through? Years ago, we talked about they were making a, a new license plate and it looked like the underside of a Pioneer wagon. Oh, uh, yeah. We, I, remember, I think I was actually on the show where we talked about that and we were like, eh. But I, I don't know. know. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. All right. So um, this is this is Latter-day Saint related in kind of an interesting way. I have a lot of funny questions about this. I guess in a world where Gary E. Stevenson can still be allowed to sit on the board of the company he founded, which, which by the way, you know, he's not on anymore. They did a corporate restructuring after having a bunch of Interesting. Uh, they they uh, delayed the IPO and restructured and booted Stevenson from the board. From huh. um, so I, I was on Twitter. that podcast yeah. episode too, and we talked about that story. I didn't realize I didn't know about the follow up. That's really yeah. interesting. So that's been an interesting little mess. I that think even, all, all of our any of us who had questions about that, those questions are now moot. So it's more or nice. less, he could he still is a shareholder and stuff. Sure. So anyway, but but kind of along the same line of like, here's an apostle just going to kind of prop up some private industry for no good reason, even though I think we can all, we can all be happy about it. It's, it's Elder Uchtdorf at the airport. It's planes, it's Germany. It's all the stuff we love about him. Um, say, it's not no good reason. It's not he, no good reason, but, at the, same time, but at the same time, you could argue like, just like you could with Elder Stevenson, like, is this a thing that's relevant in his life anymore? Like, <laughs> right. like officially, like what is the benefit to the church? It's fine. It's fine. This is just, you know, we're, we're, we're parsing hairs here. So splitting hairs is the phrase. Sorry. Um, so uh, he went to the airport because they just opened up with under Lufthansa. Well, it's sort of their subcarrier, though, right? It's not Lufthansa proper. I'm, I'm, I think I misspoke on that. Anyway, a subsidiary Eurowings, yes, which is a subsidiary of Lufthansa, um, opened up a, I think, twice weekly flights from uh, Frankfurt to Salt Lake City International Airport. So who better to have on hand for the great celebration that this is? Uh, inaugural flights are a fun thing in the aviation community, by the way. It's like a real thing with big enthusiasts like to go to like the first flight of these sorts of things because there's always a party at the gate. There's there's a lot of fanfare going on. They usually have trinkets. They have special, whether it's shirts or plaques or things people get for being on the first flight that ever did this. So this is a big deal in the aviation world. And why not get everyone's favorite aviator, Dieter F. Uchtdorf, to show up? And just kind of shares excitement about having nonstop flights between Germany and Salt Lake City, which is cool. I mean, it's great. Um, and he spoke about, but the thing that he stressed a lot, this is good in his role as an apostle, as he said, like, look, this is great essentially because it means people might come to the United States and they will transit either through Salt Lake City or come to Salt Lake City to go and actually stop here and to get somewhere else. And it will give them more opportunity to like, meet members of the church. And he said, you know, he likened it to like, just as it's great for church members to travel to Europe and see what life is like for Europeans, understand them better. It's great for Europeans to have an opportunity to visit this side of the United part of the United States. The international travel is a tool to communicate with the world. And then we have, uh, this wonderful part. He says, well, travelers from abroad may come to this part of the country to access renowned national parks. They stay in Salt Lake City where they connect with many who may be Latter-day Saints. And here's the quote. And they might find out the Mormons are really good people, are really real people. They're nice people. They're not bad. And this way, communication and the reduction of biases, negative biases can be overcome. A wonderful quote, but one that also makes me laugh because here you have, who's now a senior apostle, 
actually calling us Mormons again four years later uh, on the record. And I have to wonder if there's ever a follow-up in the upper echelons of church leadership after this. <laughs> or is he doing it deliberately? Is What are the inner workings of the apostles? Does this telling us that Elder Uchtdorf has never agreed with the, the get rid of Mormon campaign and this is one of his chances to vent about it? So many that, things. <laughs> I think you may be reading into it a little heavily. I think that probably it's just something that popped out of his mouth and he was I just know. like, ah, I guess I said what I said. I know, it's just funny. It's yeah. just I think it's, you know, I mean, I know you I, I get what you're saying about how it's sort of like there, there's a little bit of like shilling for his former employer kind of a thing going. Maybe you could read it that way, but I think it's just, I think he's just excited. Dude, the guys grew up in Germany and he sees now this connection between his new home with his old home and he's excited. He wants to talk about it. Um, I mean, I was thinking like, you know, if there was like a new Acela, whatever train, a high speed train between Seattle and Eastern Idaho, I'd be telling everybody about it. I'd be like, did you hear about this? This is so cool. I can go home in like a few hours because I can hop on this high speed train. I mean, it, regardless of my role, I'd just be like, I want everyone to know about this cool new thing that, that connects my cool. old home to my new home. And like, I don't know. So uh, now we I'm not an apostle, so like my role is quite different. If you know, and so I, I there's no inappropriate context for me to like talk about people, talk to people about this. But I think he's just excited, and he's an aviator too, and it's just it just it falls into so many of his personal interests that he's just like I'm going to make a statement about this. I know it's true. I hope now that they uh, some they open up a direct route between Salt Lake City and somewhere in Brazil, and then we get other Suarez to show up as well. And That's right. And then he'll be like, going. let me tell you about this new airline route that I'm really excited about. I mean, if you remember, there was uh, there was that stretch there when they were doing, Delta was doing nonstops to Paris. And I think they gave up on it from Salt Lake mm. City. That was a big deal. Salt That's Lake a City, long Salt flight. Inter- international because most the international flights are mostly to Canada, maybe some to Mexico. But that would be like an eight-hour nonstop flight between paris and, and salt lake at least eight hours that, that'd be a long time to sit oh it'd be, it'd be a long yeah to go get some camembert <laughs> this is all about cheese people this is what we're doing now this is our new theme jeff's not on board I'm okay good. uh I'm so good. so um just I, this isn't a great segue who knows but like just as we're talking about uh uh uh, apostles giving uh, press conferences and quotes. Uh, we did recently have Elder Bednar speak at the National Press Club and do a Q&A. This is from the church newsroom. Um, and it, what was really interesting about this uh, to me, and this is something that the article pointed out, is that the last uh, senior member of church leadership to sit down and speak with the National Press Club was uh, President Hinckley. You know, and, and if those of us who remember, who were uh, alive and actively watching such things at the time can remember President Hinckley did a lot to open up um, communication between church leadership and the press. And he famously appeared on uh, 60 Minutes. He was on Larry King Live a couple of times. Um, he, he was very he, media, very, very media savvy. Very media savvy. And it was just really interesting because like the church before that, not that they were media shy, but it was more you know, when, when the church popped up in like national news, it was a little bit more of a novelty for whatever reason, it wasn't a big priority to be, um, you know, reaching out and having that kind of a PR media presence and president Hinckley 
made it a priority and it was a really interesting move and and in, i think you know from what i remember from these interactions it was a really positive thing he was able to speak up and make more people aware of what we believe and what who the latter latter-day saint people are etc anyway so yeah and now we have elder bednar kind of following suit many years later and uh, having a q a press conference with the national press club uh talking about the church and trying to help them understand i guess the, the main thrust of this article from the church newsroom uh, or the newsroom uh, was just talking about sort of like our humanitarian efforts and what we do to try and help the world and bless the world. But there was a Q&A as well where they talked about all sorts of things from race relations to the LGBTQ community. They talked about the DC temple. They talked about church growth in Africa. I mean, it was just every, everything under the sun uh, as far as what's going on with the church these days. And it's an interesting, you know, it's a good, it's a good uh, little blurb to read about from the church newsroom. And uh, I, I liked a, a little quip when they asked him about like the, the classic question, church has substantial reserves, a lot of resources mm-hmm. at, available to it. Uh, should it be doing more? And before going into a, a, a genuine response to that, Elder Benner kind of says, "Like, well, I just want to know. It's like if you've looked at the stock market recently, because he's like, I don't know if that. He's like, I don't think it's. I think it's a hundred billion anymore." Which was kind of, kind of his joke. Did he say uh, like that? That wasn't in the. Did you watch the the video feed? Because like I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. The, some of this is in the video. This is not the kind right. of stuff that, that, especially not the church news or the newsroom is going to report on. Um, That's kind like, of funny. So, I mean, he said, so his actual response, though, he says people want to bang on the church and say, well, you've got all that money in reserve. He said, yeah, and it's a good idea for people to follow that example. Yeah. Read in the Old Testament about seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. It's a good idea to prepare. Uh, these undertakings that I've described are resource consuming, not resource generating. He's talking about all the other things the church does. And a lot of people depend on the resource that we provide. And if things are different in the future than they are now, we think it's provident and wise to prepare to maintain that kind of support in an uncertain economic environment. I agree with all of that, but I still don't understand. If 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 2020 was like not the time, I don't understand when, when was. I mean, I know things could be a lot more calamitous than, than it was during the first year of COVID. But yeah. I still find it curious that... We're saying we're holding on to this for a very bad time. And 2020 was the worst time in a very, very long time. Well, and going back to the point that, you know, the the tongue-in-cheek joke about like, the, well, have you seen the stock market? It might not be $100 billion anymore. Like, that's one of the points that often comes into my mind when people make that argument that like, well, when things get really bad, the church is going to be glad that they have all this money. And I'm like, well, when things get really bad they probably won't have that money because the, you know, the stock market's going to like, it's all, it's all, it, the the money, you know, the, that they have, it's all invested. And so it's like, it's not like they have a hundred billion dollars just sitting in a, you know, in gold bars in a safe, like they, they have it invested in things. And so it's like, well, when things get really bad, we're going to need it. And like, well, when things get really bad, it might be worth a 10th of, <laughs> of what it's worth right now. So I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's not one of these, it's not a thing that gives me big hangups like it does some people. But I do feel like all of the answers and the discussion around it from official channels is never quite satisfying to me because I'm like, okay, I hear that, but <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's just, it, I don't know. I, I don't have good answers and I don't, but also, like I said, I don't have like a huge beef with it um, like some do. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, the Q&A was cool. Um, the church has its own published version of it which is not the feed I initially watched. So I don't know if they've, I actually don't know if they've edited that. It's fun when you see the thumbnail because you can see one Willard Mitt Romney sitting just two seats over from where mm-hmm. Robert are standing, just up there on the stage. Um, only that because I don't know if they edited out anything 
that might have been asked of him uh, elsewhere. Because like you said, they asked him very much about LGBT things. They said, can women be leaders? And he was just like, no. To Elder Bednar's credit, of course, he was very forthright. Like, we follow the pattern from the original church, and those positions were held by men. And that's all which he said is, about it. Which is also debatable. There are references to female apostles in the New Testament. So, yeah, know, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't elaborate. Uh, and you could argue in some cases that he gives almost politician type answers to some things. Like, what do you do for uh, transgender members? And he basically just says, like, we love them and want them here without. But he didn't even say it that strongly. It was sort of like this vague answer about loving he says, everybody. <laughs> he said, we welcome all and strive to love them. Now, I use the word strive because we don't do that perfectly. And so people have stereotypes, they have misconceptions, they have biases, and they have prejudices. We strive to love everybody. I like, I mean, and and really, as far as non answers go, that's a pretty good one. Um, I do, and especially coming from Elder Bednar. And this is just maybe my personal bias about some of the things he says. Like, I don't, you don't really see him as one of the people who's like acknowledging the shortcomings of leadership or the saints as a whole and to acknowledge like we don't love perfectly we often fall you know you know to stereotypes prejudices etc like i found that refreshing and i and i appreciated that so well one of the questions i really did like now that i'm kind of looking through these is we're talking um he said they asked him many church leaders including you have deep business administration backgrounds what are what some the of the benefit? <laughs> what are some of the advantages of so much business acumen at the church's highest levels? I like I thought he was pretty candid here though. He said like I've tried really hard not to let my academic training influence what I do as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember watching this segment and there were some kind of offhanded comments he made throughout basically saying like for me it like it I have to remember to like divorce myself from David Bednar the academic mm-hmm. and the apostle. He's like obviously stuff still gets filtered through my lens and my understanding and who I am. Um but I'm still striving to be an apostle first and foremost. But I like that he stressed that like he too has like a weakness. He has a natural ability to want to look through things a certain way. And he has to remind himself to do it differently. Of course. I, I mean, that's the thing, you know, and, and we love to pull out the the reference about like how, you know, things can be corrupted because like the philosophies of man get mingled with scriptures. And people like to use that as like a way to condemn people who are conflating their political beliefs with or whatever with you know with the doctrine without recognizing that they're doing the same thing <laughs> they're conflating their own political beliefs you know it's just like well you know you're conflating political beliefs that i don't agree with with the gospel anyway my point is uh when we when we acknowledge that you know the philosophies of man can be mingled with scripture what we don't often recognize is that that goes all the way up this isn't just like a, a tool of satan it's a, it's just a fact of the world that all of us have our own lens. Whether you're Jared Gillen's the lowly, you know, no, non-entity of of like church leadership, or whether you're David A. Bednar or Russell Nelson, every single person approaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, like you said, through like a filter of like their their experiences, their education, their you know, their political beliefs, their you know, just you know, there's so many things that give us a, a perspective that gives us our own little slanted or tainted or whatever you want to say, take on the gospel. Nobody has a pure and perfect understanding of God's will. All of us are approaching it. And, and, and so anyway, yeah, like you said, it's refreshing again to hear someone high in church leadership and especially someone like Elder Bednar acknowledge like, yeah, I have my biases and I have the, the, the lens of my academic training, et cetera. And I'm doing my very best not to have that. He doesn't say like, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I perfectly eschew those things 
he acknowledges, no, it's, it's a thing that I have to work on. Yeah, he and says, I, I do I, not take my academic background and experience and impose that on the church. I let the doctrine of Christ influence how I see things. So certainly there are practical advantages, referring to like his a- academic personal mm-hmm. training. There's practical advantages in knowing about how organizations run and budgeting and so forth. But I really view that as secondary. I try to view what we do and the mission we fulfill through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So good Q&A. We're checking yeah, out. That's hard. I remember when I was on a... A multi-state committee when I was single, I was on a multi-state uh, committee that was supposed to be, you know, helping outreach for all YSAs, like in an eight-state area. And we had, I, and I was, I was a chair of this committee and, and the stake that I was in, that we were in back in that day, Jeff uh, was, uh, it was the Mount Vernon stake in Virginia. And it was by far the highest concentration of YSAs at, in that eight-state region. And so the high counselor who was advisory to our committee came from that stake. Anyway, and anyway, so uh, I, and I knew him fairly well. I ended up being in this same ward as him when I got married, but I remember being a little resistant because this man had a very heavy, like business background in his education and his professional experience. And he, you know, he had an advisory role, but he kept on approaching me who was technically, I was technically the head of this committee. I was in charge. I had a co-chair. The two of us were in charge and uh, he really wanted to impose some practices and underlying things that were based out of his business experience and make some certain aspects of this committee run more business-like. And I remember being really resistant to that <laughs> because I was like, I don't feel like the way I understand this calling and the way we are to run this committee, I don't like the businessification i felt like, i don't i can't remember all of my beefs but i remember i i kind of had to have some conversations with this man and, and push back a little bit because i was like i understand that like to you from your perspective and your experience this is the best way to administer this part of the church and i was like but to me that's not my background and i don't want to incorporate those practices or those principles and there was a lot of back and forth and we were never like there was never any hostility we never fought about it but it just gave me that insight of like, we approach things differently based on our experience and our education. And maybe if, you know, that brother, that high counselor, if he had been running the committee, he would have done that and it would have been successful in its own way. But I and my co-chair were running the committee and we were, I was like, no, we were going to do it this way. And anyway, that's just, yeah, a little personal insight into what yeah. other Bednar's talking about. I appreciate it. Pivoting real quick. Pivot. Um, Interesting interesting article here over by Common Consent by Eric Hackenberger, an Austrian who apparently served his mission in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, We did not overlap. This person does not ring a bell to me, but lo and behold, faros unite. Um, He studied peace building at BYU-Hawaii. I just like that you can apparently get a degree in peace building. BYU-Hawaii is awesome. Article is called Nephi, Alma, Batman, Superman. Uh, the, the crux of it essentially is he says, I can tell you the exact moment I stopped liking Nephi. It was when the church released the Book of Mormon videos. So on the upside, that means he only stopped liking Nephi in the past couple of years. So this didn't come from the scriptures. He only stopped liking (laughs) Nephi a handful of years ago. Um, His argument is that Laman and Lemuel are more relatable in the Book of Mormon videos and their response. Like their response to Lehi leaving Jerusalem was human. Nephi's response, as he describes it, was that of an unfeeling robot. He says, most people I talked to during that period of time about the videos felt the same. We all felt a little bit more like Laman and Lemuel than like Nephi. And so he says, there's kind of the problem. Nephi and his perfectionism becomes unrelatable. His youthful zeal borders on fanaticism. His treatment of his brothers lacks empathy or, or, or I like, like this, or at least evinces an inability to read the room. 
um, that he argues that Nephi gets stale over time. And then he compares that to someone like Alma the Younger, <clears throat> who most people like quite a bit. Uh, obviously, this is purely anec- it's anecdotal. We're making a lot of assumptions, right? But people like relate to Alma the Younger. And this illustrates the Superman problem. It's the idea that Nephi is like Superman. And the creators of Superman ran into an issue because Superman was too strong. He was in, like, you couldn't beat him. He was invincible. So there was no drama. Like there was, he was unrelatable. He was just boring. He was Superman. Batman, on the other hand, was different because he was still a human. He had a lot of expensive toys and ability, but he was a vulnerable human being without any superpowers who could be hurt like anybody else. And so he feels that Alma is relatable a la Batman because Alma shows us his weaknesses, shows us his mistakes, tells us about his darker moments, his sins, his sorrows, his fears. Um, Alma uses that, of course, to even teach his own sons. And and so like we relate more to Alma because Alma is somebody where we see his journey from sinner to someone who's found joy uh in christ and then he even says like he has his own personal memories he says you know church leaders in general don't really talk about like their own vulnerability but some do and for him that's been more impactful he said links it as marlon k ashton but he means jensen um but when old friend he talked about the story when old friends came to visit and he grew impatient hoping they would leave soon so he could get about writing his talk or elder his talk about like loving kindness or something like that yeah or Elder Holland teaching, telling us a story about how he lost his temper with his son. Uh, Elder Uchtdorf sharing a journey about how when he rides bikes, he gets competitive and his wife reminds him it's about the journey, not about like beating his wife in a bike race, for example. Yeah. Uh, and Elder Uchtdorf, who we've spoken about recently, is kind of very open about shortcomings and things like that. So lots here to dissect. Uh, and I think there's plenty to agree with or disagree with this idea of is... Is Nephi unrelatable in that sense? And, I, and the one thing I want to lead off with is we have to remember the way the Book of Mormon was created, of course, right? Like Nephi controlled a lot more of his narrative overall, even though Mormon put things together than even say than Alma the younger. He did. didn't, yeah, he didn't abridge the small plates at all. He just stuck in what Nephi wrote. So he stuck in what Nephi wrote, and then he abridged stuff later on. And so we don't know if Alma the Younger was also ever writing similar things or it's, it's all filtered through Mormon's lens. And we have to remember that as well. But I could kind of see that argument. I know there's Nephi's lament, for example. You know, we read that in the scriptures. That's, that's not lacking, of course. But um, I, he talks about his fallen nature before God. But you can read a lot of the passages in scripture and see how Nephi is just all the time, like basically like, I'm doing the right thing. What's wrong with my brothers? Why won't they do the right thing? Like, And that's kind of like, it's a very black and white relationship between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel. At least it seems that way. Yeah. But so I, I, I would recommend to any of our listeners um, a really good book by Grant Hardy called Understanding the Book of Mormon. And it's written, it's an academic book. It's, I think it's like Harvard University Press, it, whatever it is. It's an academic press that um, has published the book. And he wrote it to, a, like, you know, it, he wrote it to a Latter-day Saints, but he, he's trying to write it to everybody. Like, if you're interested in the Book of Mormon, here's it. You know, un- he wrote this book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, an introduction. And he goes really de- deep into a lot of textual analysis and, and trying to read the Book of Mormon and taking it at its word that it is what it is, right? That it's these flawed people writing these accounts and seeing their voices uh, and how, you know, and, and understanding that, that there are very different voices, you know, and he, he concentrates on three main narrators, the first being Nephi, the second being Mormon, and the third being Moroni. Anyway, reading that actually helped me um, understand Nephi, I think in a better way. And again, like you have to start from the position that, you know, to believe the book of Mormon is what it says it is. And and we, one of our articles of faith is that the, we believe the book of Mormon to be the word of God. And uh, obviously, you know, that, that is a tenet of, 
of something that as you know, if you're Latter-day Saint with a mainstream testimony, you believe that, right? But you also need to believe that Nephi is who he says he is and that Mormon is who he says he is and that they are these really deeply flawed people because all of us are deeply flawed, right? So anyway, my point is you can read Nephi and and read it at very surface level that, you know, like I'm this kid who's large in stature and I'm super obedient to my father and I'm so good at like listening to and obeying the Lord and, you know, hearing the spirit speak to me, et cetera. But also you can read it, you know, if you read it and take him at his word, you do see the flaws, right? And, and he acknowledges those flaws in 2 Nephi 4 as he acknowledges the whole the Psalm of Nephi. But really, I, I think there's more than that. Like you can read this and understand like this is a really flawed person who probably feels really self-conscious about some of the decisions that he made, such as having to kill Laban, having to leave his brothers and abandon his family when his father put him in charge at, you know, on his deathbed, things like that. And, and those, and I think those insecurities come out and you, you read Nephi in that light and you realize, yeah, he talks big, but there's like, there's like a real like self-consciousness underlying all of his writing that like, he's trying to like prove to us or maybe even just prove to himself, like, no, 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 I did it right. I did it right. I did it the best as I could. Anyway, so I, I, and I think to me that's helped because I have noticed that as well. Sometimes you read Nephi and you're like, oh, come on, Nephi, we get it. You're super righteous. You're better than your brothers. But I, I think, I don't know, just from my experience in reading and now rereading with that lens, I think Nephi knows very keenly what his weaknesses are. And he's trying his best to say, like, I did my very best to be a good example, to be a good leader, to be a good king to my people, even though I didn't want to be that, and to be a good prophet, even though that was hard, and to be a good, you know, to follow my father's footsteps, even though that was impossible, and to, like, be a good brother to my brothers, even though they made it so hard. You know, anyway, I just think there are better or at least different ways to read him and not come away with the whole like, oh, he's got the Superman problem. I I, I totally relate to the author of that that blog post. Um, but I think, like I said, I think there's a, th- that's not the only way to read it. No, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is even if one has a, a hero's view of oneself, that also is a demonstration of human weakness that we exactly can, that we can totally. even learn from. Yeah, right? that and like his. If, yeah, even if you think, oh yeah, he's so full of himself, that in itself shows that Nephi is flawed <laughs> because he's too full of himself. Yeah, and we all have flaws. And like I think about like it's, it's it's not to argue that the only effective missionaries are ones who had gone down the path of Paul or Alma the Younger or the sons of Mosiah. That you have to have been full blown oppositional to the church and to the saints in order to learn a valuable lesson and then be able to share that message with people accordingly. That's all. That's not the only, the only way to do it. You can have pr- plenty of Nephi's like in the mission field who, or even outside of that, but who can be very extremely faithful people who didn't have never wandered, who haven't deviated. And that doesn't somehow mean you're like not going to be able to have the spirit with you or be able to make valid points and, 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 preach a, a resonant gospel message to others just because you haven't perhaps sinned in the same way. And like you said, Nephi doesn't focus on his own sins, whatever they might've been. Joseph mm-hmm. Smith also didn't focus on his own sins. You know, he mentioned he got into some foibles somewhere in between the first vision and actually getting the plates, you know, teenage dumbness, whatever that might've been. Right. Um, but uh, everyone's in a position to teach and learn in different ways. So I thought it was kind of a fun article. It was a good way to turn things on their head a little bit. And no, look I think that things. was really good. Yeah, yeah it's fun. So um, <clears throat> moving on, this is a really interesting, also just kind of 
kind of interesting <laughs> uh, personal view of the church and uh, a perspective on, on I, I guess, on how the church is portrayed in popular culture. There's this uh, Deseret News article. It was an op-ed by Hannah Syriac. And the headline is, um, Latter-day Saints should be depicted in more than just disturbing true crime shows. Yes. Hollywood hasn't gotten the memo. Oh, <laughs> it's evil Hollywood. Well, I Hollywood. know. So, so, the, so the, the main thrust of this article actually really resonated with me and I agreed with, especially since, so the main thing that kind of inspired this apparently is the, the new show or movie that's being made about Joyce McKinney, uh, who is being described by the filmmaker as an anti-heroine. Oh boy! Yeah, um, and they're making so this is a movie about a true story that happened recently, and it was covered on this podcast. Uh, actually, well, the, sto- the story Mul- didn't happen recently. It's the old, the old Mormon manacle story, the eighties, a missionary. Sorry, the eighties, but but like it's t- it's been talked about more recently. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's been covered extensively on this podcast. But uh, this woman, Joyce McKinney, uh, allegedly. Uh, kidnapped an LDS missionary named Kirk Anderson and and raped him, like had sexual relations with him against his will. Um, and you know, and so it's and so it's funny to have this British filmmaker being like, "Oh, what a uh, funny little." They're making like a kind of a dark comedy, I guess, about this about this delightful <laughs> anti heroine who raped a man. Um, so like, I, and so like, as she talked about this, and then as she kind of goes into more of like, so. There's also the recent docuseries Murder Among the Mormons, and then there's the, uh, you know, the series on Hulu now under the banner of heaven, and now this this um, movie that's being made is called Sinner versus Saints. Uh, she talks about other. Oh, then she said Megan Huntsman strangling her children in Pleasant Grove is now being optioned by Netflix. Right, and so all of these things that are being are prominently featuring LDS people are all very negative stories, true crime stories. And so, like, you know, as I was reading through this, I was like, that's a good point. Like, why, you know, why is that? And then, you know, of course, you get the, the, the docuseries about my mom's cousin, the the Lula Rich, you know, and so, like, which also was not a true crime series, but also not the best uh, light to be shed on a... No, not so. Uh, on a member of the church actor or, or, or otherwise. Um, so, and then she points out there's other good, positive, you know, depictions of LDS culture or history. There's a... Uh, but all of these other things are like have been really small time. Like his name is Greenflake, and the other side of heaven, and Jane and Emma, and the Chosen. That there are like positive ways to promote and portray LDS belief and LDS history, and and all of that. Like I feel like were good points, but I was I just had an issue with the tone. Like and it, and, and it starts with that sub headline that Hollywood hasn't gotten the memo. Like her, her last line in the in the essay is uh, well, the last two sentences. And yet, when it comes to Latter-day Saints, the entertainment industry seems determined to keep making either disturbing crime films or deeply offensive comedies. And again, uh, and I agree with that, like to make a comedy about the rape of a person is offensive. But then the last line is, maybe that says more about Hollywood than it says about the Latter-day Saints. And I just have an issue anytime somebody... Mic drop. Well, makes like such a general... like tries to group and and it's not just Hollywood, but just to say like, this is the way Hollywood is. And it's like, Oh really? You're taking like Hollywood. Just 
covers so many diverse filmmakers and people who work for filmmakers and so many different diverse like types of media that's being produced that it's like Hollywood is evil and all of you know people who make good church related media are good it's like I, I have no use for such generalizations uh, it, I feel like it would have been a much more convincing article if she said certain filmmakers who have like very skewed views uh, are not getting the memo or you know are, are, are not you know behaving well or whatever, but to like make this an us versus them sort of argument, I just, it it turns me off. And so I wish that the article had been a little bit more reflective of just how things are, that it's complex, that there are people making, you know, but the thing is about like the story under the banner of heaven, it's a true story. Like, and I don't know how it's portrayed. I haven't watched it. Uh, That Lula rich, it's a true story. And I, as we talked about on the episode of the podcast, I was on several months ago, I have some insight to that. And like, there's even more to it. That's like disturbing or unlikable. Uh, You know, the, the murder among the Mormons story, true story. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like they're unfairly portraying things. It's just, I think there's probably an imbalance as she points out of the bad stuff versus the good. So anyway, but like, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, well, and the bad stuff. Bad stuff, regardless of the the community or the subject in question, is what, at least as far as screenwriters and producers often feel, becomes a more interesting story, right? Than feel good stories, regardless and, of their Latter Day Saint or not. People totally. just don't. They don't make that kind of stuff. And this this is like this is one of the issues that uh, that even Christian cinema overall runs into, right? You can make uplifting stuff, but it, it is it is hard to kind of thread that needle of still making something that can be a compelling drama with rich character development, whatever you're looking for, but still have it be uplifting or have it not lean on like the be like full blown propaganda, if that makes sense. I don't even want to call what we do as a church necessarily propaganda. We'd call it like a missionary tool or an evangelizing tool, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. There's a fine line there in the pro camp. I think that's hard. I don't expect Hollywood to do that necessarily, but I think that's hard for the um, privately funded indie filmmakers who are making the more positive side of it, but for it not to have just come up, come off as full blown preachy. Like right. how, you got to find that balance. I don't, I'm not the guy to do that necessarily. Well, some but, of the uh, stuff that um, she mentioned um, in, you know, in her examples of good LDS media um, is for, you know, like film, et cetera does skirt that line like you know so for example the jane and emma movie i don't know if you watched it but you know mel leilani larson the screenwriter and playwright who produced the you know who created that script yeah she is by no means a propagandist uh she you know wrote a a very i thought inspiring movie about the relationship between jane manning james and emma smith but also that movie very clearly acknowledged you know the some you know, issues and, and, and hardships that, you know, early saints, especially early saints of color uh, endured. And so it's not propaganda. It is a positive story overall about this neat relationship that we know existed between these two inspiring women, but it's, but on the, you know, but it's not propaganda. So I, 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 again, I, I think she chose some good examples because it's showing, yeah, you can have uplifting and more positive depictions of, of LDS history and LDS people, but without being like it being a propaganda film, without it being a, a meet the Mormons or a, I'm a Mormon campaign type stuff, which has its place. And I don't think that's, you know, bad propaganda. Don't don't take me as saying that. But my point is like, yeah, it's not necessarily like a pro church, you know, this is a missionary tool intended type 
media productions. Am I am I making sense here? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you like, if you bring the faith into part of it as the characters, because you can make an interesting story that has people who happen to be Latter Day Saints, but you're not going to like bother to show what their faith is unless that's relevant to the story somehow. And then if they're mm-hmm. making it relevant to the story, then you fall back into this whole cycle, this whole question of like, well, if is it like they learn a great lesson and then become better Latter Day Saints because of it? And that's less appealing to a lot of people sure. who the stories. And I get that. And, and I'm well, not going to say she's totally off. Like, I don't like the us versus them mentality or the world and all that stuff. Yeah. But I'm not going to pretend that like a lot of Hollywood is not interested in putting down Latter-day yeah. Saints. There, there's, there's absolutely a number of producers and people involved who have their sights set on Salt Lake City for sure. I sure, mean, but, I, but is that the majority and is that like a, a, an actual trend? Like, I don't know about that. Like, I, it gets a little conspiratorial if you try to you know, make the argument that like, that's what Hollywood does. They're out to get us kind of a thing. So, so before we leave this one, though, I do want to say there's some comments at the Deseret News uh, post. I saw the one here that I thought was good. Never read the comments, Jeff. No no, 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 no. Most of them are terrible. But this one was just some ideas for some reality TV themes they could pick up then. Ready? For, I'm going to read these four. I think these are great. Cliven and Ammon. A story for rebels without a clue. Two freeloading government haters fight to bring righteousness to the battle for free cattle grazing on public lands. Or actually, I really like the second one. Real Housewives of the Bishopric. A show oh, no. about the glamorous lives of exhausted women whose men aren't home often enough. Oh my gosh. The neighbor, the neighbor knows too much. A weekly series about interviews with the bishop. The most watched will be the shows featuring worthiness of soon-to-be missionaries. Oh, that's really funny. Real quick, again, I'll say one last thing I wanted I to say before we moved on. And that is that I think for me, part of the answer to this problem that she brings up is that maybe we should, it would be helpful or beneficial to have more portrayals of Latter-day Saints in popular culture, movies, et cetera, where they're, they're, the fact that they are Latter-day Saint isn't a central point of the plot. Yeah. And the best example that I'm coming up with, and, and I, I don't know, this may alienate some of our listeners, but like uh, if anybody saw the recent uh, Netflix animated uh, movie, Mitchell's versus the Machines, are you familiar with this? I've heard, I've heard it for about it, but I never saw it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Uh, it, it makes me laugh out loud very heartily. Uh, it's, I th- it's a very clever, really fun, really well done movie. And the main character uh, is a lesbian. But what's interesting about this is that it never comes up until the very, very, very end. There's like an offhanded comment about wondering if she and another woman are official, you know, as far as like being, you know, official meaning, are, are you dating? Like, are you officially an item kind of a thing? Oh, it's the Disney approach, like having LaFouf dancing with a man at the end of Beauty and the Beast. Sure. But like, but let's not call it the Disney approach because I know a lot of people uh, think Disney's like Disney's too woke, has some, man. Has, has some evil agenda or something like that. My point is like, and I read an article that was really interesting. And, and one of the people who worked on the film, uh, was also is a lesbian and and she just talked about how she really appreciated the filmmakers coming to her and saying like we were thinking that this this is one of the aspects of this character and we wanted to talk with you about making a film that has a lesbian as a a main character and she said one of the things she really appreciated was that it, it wasn't like this like really essential let's really delve into and cover how being a lesbian is this and like this aspect of her life and we'll show that she does these lesbian things, blah, 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 blah. It, it was just like, here's a person and she's involved in this drama with her family of having to fight a robot uprising. You know, the, the, the least, the, the unlikely heroes who saved the world from, uh, you know, robot uprising, etc. And it's just like, 
it, and it just so happens that one of the things that makes her character who she is, is that she's a lesbian and we don't really have to dwell on that. And, and so drawing back to the original point of this other article and, and my point is that like, can't we just have people who are Latter-day Saints and that's, that's an aspect of their character defines who it is. It defines, it, it informs their actions and their choices, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not like, a central aspect of the plot. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah, you know, I got what you mean. It would be like if we had it be like a great war movie and some of the soldiers are rubbing their rosary beads in a time of peril and one of the guys is rubbing his CTR ring. Right? right. There we go. Right. That's all well, we need. I mean, and, and the only time I will say that I, I can think of where I've seen this was actually in a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, it was... What was the one? It was the one that like goes back and it kind of gives you the, the origins of Clark... Um, Without remorse, no. Anyway, whatever it was, uh, it's it, it's a flashback, not one of his flashback novels, and it gives you the yeah the origin story of Clark, the the CIA agent who f- features prominently in a lot of Tom Clancy's stories. Anyway, there was a character who was a POW in Vietnam, and he was LDS, and like and again he used that point to make some points about like his aversion to alcohol or, or you know his sense of duty or things like that. But the fact that he was LDS wasn't like central and yeah, essential yeah, to exactly. the plot. And it didn't like make a comment one way or another about what it means. You know, is it good or a bad thing, et cetera, et cetera, to be LDS. And I, and I thought Clancy actually handled that well. And I appreciated seeing my faith depicted in a character who was central to the plot of the book without it being like making any overall commentary or judgments about who the LDS people are, et cetera. So I think, I don't know, I would like to see more of that. And I think that's a partial answer to the problem that she raises here. But the problem with that one is then that guy moved to the San Fernando Valley and started a dojo for some reason and just was really mean to the kids, really just like warped them you're, up. You're conflating. And- that, that's not a Tom Clancy story. That's a karate kid story. What? <laughs> All right. Well, fine. Uh, real quick, I think the sisters touched on this one last week, but um, our, uh, Andy Larson out of the Salt Lake Tribune, some cool data dumps here, basically talking about the loss of member share. We talk about the church is growing. That's true. The church is growing. It's growing differently at different paces than at certain parts of the world. Um but if you really look at, he looked at 40 years of state-by-state official church membership figures, reports starting in 1983, uh, then every two years from 87 to 99, then every year from 20, 2000 to 2021, with, of course, a break because of the pandemic. Um, there's some intriguing trends, he says. We're growing at a rate less than it was five or 10 years ago in the U.S. I think we've talked about that. Utah membership is growing more consistently and linearly, as is the membership in Idaho and Arizona, while some places like California, Colorado, and Wyoming have seen stagnant membership rates. So here's one of the things I love. Utah's growth, and they brought this up in the Bednar uh, Q&A that we referenced earlier, by the way. So the church added 42,000 members in the United States over the past two years by like baptism, we assume. Out of that, 34,000 of them have come from Utah. So across the whole rest of the U.S., only 8,000 people joined the church in the two years. I forgot what the question was to Elder Bednar, but essentially like, like that's interesting for sure. You expect this out of Utah, but you realize things are not happening elsewhere, perhaps as well as they could be, um, which I find, I find very interesting. I mean, obviously, I, I think that things are definitely slowing down elsewhere in the church. And the big question, of course, is are we looking at actual net losses like California disorganized like five stakes last year. A lot of people have left. Um, are we getting to a point that uh, like, is it declining? Like he says in California, 
California lost about 300,000 residents between 2021 and 2022. About a third of them died from COVID, but others moved out of the state for whatever those reasons are. And to dissect that on this podcast is not our purpose. But, um, and there's interactive charts on this, by the way, that we can't read right now because we are looking at a read review version of the Salt Lake Tribune because I won't pay the money. And that's a story for another time as well. But um, that's right. I won't pay the $3 a month to Peggy Fletcher Stack. I'm sorry. I will not do it. Have a better website. She's I mean, not listening to you. Maybe, Stop talking. She to listens her. to everything I say. I am her muse. <laughs> What's curious though is she looked at places like uh, South Dakota, Washington D.C., and Arkansas have huge boons in the share of the community, which is really interesting. I don't know what's going on quite in South Dakota. D.C. I think has seen some good growth, but this refers to D.C. proper, of course, not just like if the Northern Virginia suburbs are doing fine. That'll get that's Virginia reporting. Um, Arkansas makes some sense. The church has grown a lot in Northwest Arkansas, like Bentonville Rogers area where they're getting a temple now. Hmm. Um, Overall, I think it's curious. I love people keeping tabs on this sort of stuff. And I do wonder about church growth in the United States flatlining. And this speaks to another article we talked about weeks ago about like whether Africa was like the future of the church. It was projecting whether there would be more units in Africa than in North America. And that came up in the other bit in our Q&A as well. They asked asked specifically about like, the, the growth, the rapid growth in Africa of the church. So yeah, I mean, it is a big question. It's cool. So it's like, what do we do about North America then? I mean, this isn't just, this is not a thing just affecting our church. Uh, religion is on the decline in North America in general. Mm-hmm. And I think we try to put a good face on everything. We tout that we are growing. We are growing, but the growth rate is, it used a to be around smaller. 2%. Yeah. Now we're like sub 1% growth every year. It's like year. 0.5% growth according to the article, right? Yeah. It's very yeah. small. Um, it, which is still, it's still growth. It is still growth. That's what I'm saying. It is growth. And it's not to say that pure numbers matter, because I think there were these days back in the 90s and stuff, you know, when, when the growth rate was much hotter. But I don't know if retention was what it could be. We've heard so many, so many little anecdotes about easy baptisms and then people falling away. And that's something I think we're a little more cautious about now, which is good, right? Don't let people get baptized unless they are truly ready for it. I'd much rather have 0.5% growth if it means the majority of those people are going to stay active in the faith, then sure. if we have 2% growth and still only 0.3% of them stay in the church, then what are we doing? Like, what's the point, right? Um, but I hope we can get away as a church from this idea that our growth rate stuff, are that we're always growing, this narrative that we've kind of leaned on for so many years. To, and I think we we do it to sort of show off how great and wonderful and strong the church is. This wonderful institution in a world where religion is declining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continues to grow. That's a narrative we love, and we love using it in, as a talking point. Yeah, and I think it's great. That's I guess fine, but uh, it might be dangerous to do that because it's not necessarily an indicator of the st- actual strength of the church, and because we're going to run into what we're running into now, where I don't know if we might legitimately get into a point where we're net negative in the United States. Yeah, I don't know I, what. So one of the things that I thought about as is reading this article is that I get challenged some of my understanding of this. So I, I have a very good friend who lives in the Seattle area where, where I grew, you know, he and I grew up together and uh, the stake. So when I was a kid, I was baptized into the Redmond Washington stake. That was our stake. And then uh, when I was uh, a youth, the growth in my hometown of Kirkland was big enough that they split the Redmond stake and created a Kirkland stake. And we, at, at its high point, they had organized up, to, I think six wards in that stake. Uh, no, seven, because there was also a Spanish-speaking word. So um, anyway, so now the, uh, we saw steadily them re- recombining those words. And then about a year, year and a half ago, 
I think about a year ago, they uh, dissolved the Kirkland stake and incorporated it back into the Redmond stake. Yeah. And then uh, just recently, they did some reorganization further and reduced the, the number of wards, I think, in Kirkland is down to like two, where there used to be six. And I asked my friend about this. And he said, and I said, so what's going on? It's a, because one of the things, one of the issues of that area, like many areas on, in the coastal United States, is that it's just not affordable. Like housing rates have gone up so high that it's very difficult to purchase a house. To you know, the cost of living beyond housing also is going up and up. And I said, so is it that it's not affordable? And he said his interpretation was like, no, it's not that it's not affordable. It's just that a lot of these members who had been established here, their property values have gone up so high that to them it was more like they were cashing in on their investment and then going someplace that was more affordable either to retire or to raise kids because it's cheaper or whatever. And so but so his interpretation was no, you know, we're not it's not we're se- we're not seeing stagnating and, and loss of growth uh and, and shrinkage of of the pop- of the LDS population because it's too expensive. It's because they're moving and and his interpretation is that they're all going to Utah and Idaho. Right, because these are you know they had family there, or that's where they're originally from, or whatever. Well, and and but, I think if I can interject, I think that might be another thing too. Is you've got a lot of um, I think a lot of old guard who's selling not just because of property values, but because their kids though who can't afford to live back home sure. anymore are moving to Utah, Idaho, and Arizona, and they say, you know what, all my kids and my grandkids are never coming back here. Yep. And so I am going to sell out, cash out, and I'm going to move to them because I want to see my family. And that, but that what's interesting to me is that. You know, I think, okay, so maybe that explains a lot of the loss of growth of the church in Western Washington. But then to say that, and, th- and therefore they're all going to Utah, but like the growth numbers that this article reported for Utah don't reflect that. So it made me question like, so where are they going then? If like we know, my friend, I think has good insight as to why people are leaving like the Seattle area or Western Washington as a whole. But if they're not all going to Utah as he, as he predicted or says he understands it, well, where, where are they going? And so like, I think there's a lot of, I think this this article is really important because it brings up some really important data about church growth or the lack thereof. But the, it also, I, to me, it leaves more questions than than it gives us answers. And I think maybe that was your point all along. But I, yeah, I just, we don't know. Like, yeah, we know they're leaving Western Washington or we know they're leaving Southern California or whatever, but where are they going? If not, you know, why aren't we seeing, and they're not all moving to Washington, D.C. and South Dakota and Arkansas, Right. Like they've got to be going somewhere else. But yeah, so I, I, I'm just curious about I think what, the church what, should, what we'll learn in the future regarding this data. The church should implement an exit survey protocol across the United States. And we, it's not that it's voluntary, but when people move, they fill out an actual form and we ask them their reasons for leaving. Why not get this data? We should do yeah. We should have an actual, like a, a weird, like an interesting, like sort of church census <laughs> that gets published, like public data. Um, to see, like, yeah, they let people left here and they ended up there, you know. Well, they, I, I mean, know. and they have that. I mean, obviously, because your record, if you, as long as you move sure. your records, they know they, they've got, they're tracking that, I'm sure. But as far as like the qualitative element of it, if the why, right, that you're only going to get by asking people directly because your records don't indicate that. Sure. But yeah, no, it is a really interesting question. And we continue to see rapid growth in South America and, you know, the Philippines and Africa. But yeah, as we see declines in the other places, yeah, it makes you say, yeah, the big question, like you said, is the why. Like, where where are these people going and why are they making these moves? Yep. All right. We're running long because this always happens with Jordan. I have a good time talking. I just want to talk about this great article from LDS Living, Betty. Just wanna, I just want to have this as my end one, then you can have one here. Uh, Elder Gong walked unannounced into a ward council and he'll never know the good he did. 
this is I this is I I don't like articles like this. So this is over at LDS Living. Emily Abel wrote it. It's fine. So first of all, one thing I take issue with is her young single adult ward was meeting a month ago in the new building, the new Social Hall Avenue building in downtown Salt Lake City, which we've talked about on the show. Beautiful new building. She spends a lot of time saying the building feels like the Ritz-Carlton of church buildings. That, Am I to understand that there's no basketball court in this building? She I said that the overflow not. doesn't have a hoop, but does that mean there's no like cult, traditional cultural hall where you can play basketball here? I guess not. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the whole paragraph's like, honestly, it's so beautiful here. You could have your wedding reception in the chapel overflow. None of your guests could even realize where they were. Like this this whole paragraph is unnecessary. It's completely mm-hmm. unnecessary to the point of the story. Most of the article is unnecessary. And I know a lot about unnecessary detail in telling stories because I've been doing it for 13 years on this podcast. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I just, that part alone, it's, it's almost like it's unnecessary, but also like, okay, so now we're touting like how this meeting house is like better than other, the Ritz-Carlton of church buildings. You don't write that in a church where we have people who have very, we have far more austere Spartan meeting houses elsewhere. It sounds very Ramiemptum, doesn't it? It does a little bit. Like, look at a beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous new meeting house. Oh, it's just, you have to come. It's so- And the poor people who built it aren't allowed inside. <laughs> Oh, man. Anyway, so the point was she's in ward council, and then apparently Elder Garrett W. Gong and his wife thought it was worth it, too, because last Sunday they just walked unannounced into our ward council meeting. This also begs the question, because LDS Living is not in the business of providing captions with their photos for some reason, but there's a large photo of a number of young single adults. Um, without Elder Bednar in the photo, as best as I can... Oh, no, he's right there in the middle. He's there. He's hiding. It's like, where's Waldo? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You actually scan around and see him sitting there. Um, I, I know it's a YSA ward and there can be a lot of callings in YSA wards for all sorts of purposes. But what is this ward council, Jared? This is a 40-person ward council. What well, ward it council? said that that the one of the, you know, the, the woman that she focuses on later on in this article said she isn't actually a ward council member, but she had been invited to attend that. So I wonder if there were a lot of people who were just invited to that session of ward council. For oh, did reason. someone actually know Elder Gong was going to come then? Was this actually not a surprise? Did the I powers that, that I kind of wonder about that. I don't know. I don't know. Because I mean, I look at this and I'm like, there's only so many callings to go around here, people. I want just like, what is this? This board council is half your board. I mean, what is happening here? That alone confuses me. This is why none of them are married. So um, I don't know that to be true. Elder Gong walked in. He talked with them. He counseled with them a bit. Talked about one of my favorite topics, the two words counsel and counsel and the difference between the two and how that how that relates to us. And then she goes on to talk about how she's looking at this young sister who, quote, began to sat up a little straighter as Elder Gong talked. I saw her nodding and smiling. I saw a change come over her. With the meeting was over and Elder Gong had left, his sister turned to me with excite- more excitement in her voice than I'd ever heard and said, actually, I have some ideas for a Relief Society activity. And da, 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 da. Anyway, she's like staring at the countenance of some girl and they're making her feel better. I... I don't know what the there's a lot of speculative reading of people's countenances in this article. Is Emily able is she an actual is this just like she does write things. She wrote another article about Kirby Hayborn coming back for a church video and the chosen stuff. So she does write she actually wrote the Jenny Doan uh profile piece from the other week. So this was her word council and Elder Gong showed up and that's cool. I mean, I've often wondered what it would be like to have an apostle randomly show up at my sacrament meeting. That'd be fun, I guess. I just don't I it's that's fine. It's one of these articles that might as well say Elder Gong walked into a ward council and you won't believe what happens next. It's BuzzFeed people. That's what we got out of that one. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Jared's going to take it somewhere even better 
to, to close us out here this week. Even yeah, this better. is the best way to, to close yeah. this, isn't it? So I, I just, I don't, I don't think this story merits going into great detail. And I'm kind of glad that I don't know the great details, but <laughs> I, I was telling Jeff, so I, I you know, I, I'm a Twitter user and I often, a lot of the people I follow on Twitter are part of what you would call hashtag Mormon Twitter or whatever. Um, so that's what a lot of what dominates my feed is seeing the discussions that go around on LDS uh, Twitter type folk. Anyway, uh, so I, I, I was like, I haven't been on Twitter for a while. And I got on the other day and <laughs> the only thing and everyone on MoTwit <laughs> was talking about was this scandal of Mormon TikTokers in, where was it? It was like in Draper or... It ha- I, the whole article makes me assume it's Draper. It's got to yeah, be Draper somewhere in the da- Salt Lake Draper. Valley. Anyway, apparently there's this whole <clears throat> movement of Mormon swingers on TikTok, and uh, this and this big drama that exploded when like certain of the Mormon swingers went too far because they had an agreement that they only they didn't go all the way, but then some of them did and. I don't know. Guys, if you really want to know about this, you can go to Pop Crush or Pop Sugar, some of the hard-hitting journalistic uh, entities online that have covered this story. Or you can go to the Mormon TikTok or try to find the origin of all the threads on Twitter. But my favorite part was when they started naming names of like who's involved in this scandal. And it's just like, I don't know who these people are, but just listen to how... Mormon, their names are Braden and McKenna, Selver and <laughs> Victoria, Sel- Selver. Chase what and Miranda it? Hope, Connor and Whitney, Samuel and Camille. That one, those last two aren't as much, but like, yeah, Braden and McKenna. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, if there are any Mormon swingers, they are named Braden and McKenna. Anyway, it's just okay. so funny because, like, uh, uh, if our members, if our listeners don't know what a swinger is or I don't want to tell them. You can look this it up goes- for yourself. You're a big kid. Um, but it's just so funny to see this scandal come out. And of course, if it was going to happen anywhere in this community, it was going to happen in Draper, Utah. Um, anyway, it's just so it's just an interesting thing because usually you don't see sexual scandal acknowledged so openly in LDS news, um, especially yeah with like multiple this- couples who apparently have some sort of open swinger type relationship with each other. I don't know. It's it's just a really weird story, and that the fact that it became so yeah. prominent on LDS social media is just like maybe it just speaks to the fact that we've had a relatively slow, slow Mormon news week. But we haven't. We've been so busy. Um, this reminds me of that one from a few months ago. That woman who's like, who is an adult has like an OnlyFans page. Oh right. And she's just like, but I'm an active member of the church, and they don't understand. Like. Something psychologically is going on here, and that's not mine to dissect. But I often wonder about the mentality of people who um it's one thing if you just say, like, oh yeah, like I was like raised Mormon or whatever. You know, there's plenty of there's plenty of people in Utah who might identify culturally and historically with the church, but they're not involved day to day as Latter-day Saints. Sure. We don't in the case of these alleged swingers, we don't know what that is. But the thing is, I've bumped into this years ago on the Twitter. There was even a Mormon swingers like Twitter account. And mm-hmm. I corresponded with them a little bit because this was the people who were like active in church, people who are openly saying like, we are active in church with temple recommends. And yet this, the swinging. Um, and I was just fascinated by it. And I thought about having them on the show, but I was telling you before, I thought it was like almost too salacious and I didn't want to legitimize any of it. Right. Um, but, but cause there's, that's obviously the big question is just like, 
how do you, if you're not active in the faith and you're just, it's just a question, then, okay, that's a totally different thing. That's just a question of what is sexually okay and permissible within you and your spouse and other people. But if you're a, a, a temple recommend holding or faithful Latter-day Saint, there's kind of some significant clauses about chastity and what that entails and things we even covenant in the temple that are very specific about how uh, the sanctity of marriage is also about, uh, it's just, you know, one-to-one and that's it. There's not, there's not like, there's no way to like talk yourself around it. I don't Mm -hmm. think that exists. And so it fascinates me, at least from a subject matter standpoint, because I'm like, just like, I don't get how you justify this. I think there's a lot of things in our, in our faith, in our doctrine elsewhere, where you can find carve-outs, you can find different ways to interpret stuff that might work for you. I don't see any wiggle room in the idea of swinging as an active Latter-day Saint. I just, I, I cannot find the argument for it. I can right. turn myself in, into knots trying to do it, but it does not exist. Also, I just want to congratulate this stupid page on Pop Crush for randomly, much of these names you mentioned, some of them are bolded and hyperlinked. Does it link to their TikTok accounts or their? Uh, I think I think they've deleted a number of them. It looks like it's supposed to go to a tag TikTok account. Maybe everybody did because it goes nowhere. They all go to dead links. Yeah, well, and they acknowledge in the article that's one of the things that like is because of proof of the scandal is that so many of these people not only unfollowed each other but maybe even like deleted their accounts. And so it's sort of like the oh I'm you know they must be guilty of what of what's being said here because why else would they like just duck and cover and, Look, and people, delete their you, accounts? If you get invited to a party. By anyone find out what the nature of the party is first you need to find out for sure is it involved swinging or does it involve multi-level marketing these are the two things you need to have on your radar as latter-day saint are the hosts named names like brayden and mckenna things like that yes so that's number one and and the demographic there's a lot of things you should consider where is it happening is it happening in draper for example all bad mostly bad things happen in draper you uh, should when we were in alexandria my Kelsey got invited to a party. It was like a little gathering. You know, it was supposed to be just like a girls' lunch kind of thing, and it ended up being an MLM pitch. I think like, my it wife happens was, everywhere. I think my wife was at that same one. Probably we won't name names here. <laughs> we were probably talking. I think about I the remember same thing. hearing about this, <laughs> and I remember my wife coming home being like, "Uh, I thought I was just getting to know girls in the ward." <laughs> nope. <laughs> so uh, don't swing, everybody. Don't swing. It's not a thing. You can't. And do don't it. MLM. Don't, don't, not that they're on the same tier of If you're going to look for alternative means of income, become an influencer. You don't need to MLM any more people. <laughs> Influencing leads to swinging, Jeff. <laughs> and there is the name of the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We have a good time, don't we? Oh, uh, we do. Anyway, we've run very long this week, folks. We thought we'd interviewed somebody important, but we haven't, just ourselves. So uh, anyway, thanks for taking the time to tune in and hope you'll follow us on all the places of the socials and all those things. Please support us on Patreon if you haven't done so already. And much love to those of you who do that every month. It means a lot and it's uh, extremely useful for keeping this whole enterprise going. Um, Jared, do you have anything to plug before you want to go? I don't. I just wanted to thank you for having me on the show and thanks for uh, indulging my long discussion of cheese at the beginning. That's why we went an hour and a half. That, well, <laughs> just kidding. All told, that was actually about four minutes. Okay. So I can't blame it. Anyway, folks, thanks for listening in. Uh, for Jared, I'm Jeff. Appreciate listening to This Week in Mormons. We'll talk to you later. Until then, have a good week.